Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Sara Saduani, Assistant Professor of Politics, an expert in American politics and race and ethnic politics. Welcome, Sarah. Thank it's, you. It's good to have you with us um, here in in cyberspace. <laughs> the only <laughs> place. where we all. This is the only place we ever meet anymore. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so how how are you adapting to this? weird pandemic world? Uh, have you found any things that help you get through it all? Well, it's definitely been been a wild ride because my life has changed drastically in the last year. A year ago, um, you know, I was not at Pomona College. I, I was actually an assistant professor at Cal Lutheran University. Um, um, so I've, I, you know, I've come back to Pomona and that's certainly been um, an interesting experience to do uh, virtually um, with a lot of students that I haven't necessarily met before, um, you know, even courses that I haven't necessarily taught before. So, so certainly there have been some challenges. I also, you know, serve on the California Redistricting Commission now, which is is something new for me, and and that process is is um, all virtual, which uh, typically otherwise we would be meeting in Sacramento on a regular basis. So, um, lots of changes for sure. I, I also, you know, have three young kids who are all home. So, so definitely a wild ride for Bless sure. You. <laughs> Thank you. I need it. <laughs> um, yeah, as a politics professor whose you know, research is intricately related with race and ethnic politics. Um, this past year must have been a whirlwind, aside from the pandemic. Um, how did the presidential election shape your research? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Well, I mean, from a research perspective, my I was anticipating being out in the field conducting interviews throughout the entire election cycle um, in key, key um, congressional district races. That certainly did not happen. Um, I had high hopes that you know by summertime I would at least be able to get out, but that that was not in the cards for me. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I continued um, I continued my research. You know, for me, I study predominantly uh, Asian American and Latino voting behavior here in California, um, looking to ex extend that research into other areas, um, and so in lieu of being able to go out and talk with, with people about, um, about elections and how they're feeling about it, I was able to run a survey um, of Indian Americans. I thought it was an interesting and unique opportunity given Kamala Harris uh, being on the, on the ticket as the vice presidential um, nominee and now of course as the vice president. Um, you know, she represents something different to so many different people. Um, we hear a lot, I think, about her experience as a black woman, um, as a woman of color, kind of generally. But we didn't, we, we weren't hearing quite as much about um, her experience as an Indian American woman. 
And that was something that I really wanted to pick up on. It was a thread through my prior research, looking at Asian American voter turnout and um, candidate preferences. Um, and so I, I had prior research that had shown that for Indian Americans, um, what it seemed like in any case is that for uh, when an, another Indian American was on the ballot, what I found was a massive turnout of Indian American voters, a surge, right? And so when we talk about voter turnout, um, what, what we're saying is people that would otherwise stay home, otherwise sit on the couch and not participate, what we see is a rise in, in people actually going, to, going out to the polls. And so I wanted to, to further drill down and understand if Kamala then would have that same kind of effect nationwide on, on Indian American immigrants. And so I ran this survey um, this past fall in October, right before um, the election to capture um, where Indian Americans were at at that moment in time, um, what kinds of issues were most pressing for them. Um, and, you know, we had we had some interesting results. So um, it's it's definitely um, the pandemic has definitely changed the 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 outlook of my research or the the kinds of methodologies that I was planning to use. But I think in some ways it's it's also it's it's been a blessing in disguise and has allowed me to kind of explore in new areas. What were some of the the findings of yours? You talked about, you know, the turnout. Um, and I'm assuming the pandemic had some also effects on, on political behavior. Can you tell us more about the findings of your survey? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, there had been a narrative that perhaps Indian Americans wouldn't be supportive of Kamala for a host of reasons, right? So perhaps because she's biracial, um, they wouldn't view her as Indian. Perhaps because of the, the rising tide of conservatism and what some call Hindu nationalism in, in India, um, that Indian Americans might have started to pull away from the Democratic Party. Um, I should note kind of the background here is that in um, the National Asian American Survey that's been conducted since 2008, Indian Americans, more than any other national origin subgroup of Asian Americans, have strongly identified with the Democratic Party. Um, so, so this was kind of an interesting time period, seeing what's happening in India with Prime Minister Modi, and and the you know there's there's been a lot of um, you know civil strife happening in India over the last several years. Of course, Modi came to the United States. There was a huge Howdy Modi Modi uh, event in Houston, in which um, Donald Trump had appeared and they had embraced. And so there was a a, a, a national narrative about perhaps Indian Americans are changing. Um, we did not find any any evidence of that. So I, I should also just note my co-author on this is Manisha Rora from Wellesley College. Um, we didn't we didn't find any evidence that Indian Americans are pulling away from the Democratic Party as some some had suggested could be happening. Instead, we saw actually a strong support for Kamala Harris. Um, some variation was that of newer cohorts of Indian Americans, people who have arrived um, within the last 10 years or so, um, had perhaps less a less strong connection with the Democratic Party. Um, but then again, you also have people in that cohort who are not eligible to vote. They, they're still immigrants. Um, so we didn't we we felt from from our findings, we, we saw a strong a strong support for Kamala Harris. And the other interesting piece that really came out was 
an overwhelming majority of respondents in the survey really want to see more Indian Americans elected to office. Like this was Democrats, Republicans, they, it, we even asked a question, if, would you support an Indian American regardless of their, of their partisanship, right? If they're Democrat, Republican, over 60% said, yes, they would. Um, so that was, was really telling um, about where the Indian American community is that, yeah, they're strongly aligned um, with the Democratic Party, but uh, that there still might be some openings there. Um, for for some individuals to who would be willing to cross over to support other Indian American candidates. So all of this was kind of the backdrop to to the presidential election. Um, and you know where where is it that voters matter most? Well, we have an electoral college. So looking at those key states where um, um, you know, where there's there's slim vote margins. And of course, you know, Georgia comes into play here as well. Um, there's 58,000 registered Indian American voters in Georgia, predominantly in the, the suburbs of Atlanta. Um, so did Indian Americans play some role in the outcome of the Georgia election? It, it certainly would seem to be the case. Um, and, and that would be true, you know, there's an upcoming election in Virginia that I'm looking closely at for a governor's race. Again, a large number of Asian American and Pacific Islanders, in particular Indian Americans. Um, so it's definitely, I think one of the key pieces that's really interesting for me in this research is when we move out from California, seeing where there are concentrations of Indian Americans, as well as other Asian American and Pacific Islanders, um, and the extent to which those communities might actually play a role being the margin of, of victory uh, in any given election. You know, in um, sort of our national discourse about politics, um, there's a lot of attention to Black American voters, a lot of attention to Latino American voters. There doesn't seem to be a lot of attention to Asian American voters, and then you're working with the, a, a subgroup of that, uh, the the Indian American voters. I, I'm I'd be interested a little in hearing a little more about the importance of that of those groups and why you think they get kind of overlooked nationally. Yeah, when I think I think the the key term to add on to this is. Asian Americans aren't getting a lot of attention yet. <laughs> uh, Asian American and Pacific Islanders are the fastest growing immigrant group in America. The Pew Research Center um, forecasts that by the year 2055, Asian Americans will uh, surpass Latinos as the largest immigrant group in, in the United States. Um, so one of the, so I, th I think there's a number of reasons why we don't hear more um, you know, about Asian Americans, it is a very diverse community, right? We lump a lot of people together under this category <laughs> yeah, sure of AAPI, right? And we're talking about Chinese Americans, Korean, Japanese, Vietnamese, Cambodian. Here in California, we have, we have communities of the Hmong, Indian, Bangladeshi, right? I mean, there's just so many people. There's so much diversity um, within this, this one little box that, that we refer to. Um, and I think one of the other issues is that for a long time, Asian Americans have been have been kind of saturated here in California, as well as on, in typical receiving areas um, in the Northeast, right? New York, New Jersey, those kind of key regions. What we're seeing with, with also with the Latinx community, though, 
is that over time, um, people are spreading out. They can realize, oh, you know, cost of living is far less in the in Atlanta or in Houston or in other places than in Texas. Or excuse me, than in, in California. Um, you know, we can we can see that as businesses move to other places, that there's um, an increase. Uh, of immigrants from Asia who are who are populating those communities. So so I think it's it's just a, a matter of time before we he are hearing more and more about uh, about Asian Americans uh, and their their political participation. And I think it's a wide open field where um, both parties, quite frankly, should be should be expending their their efforts uh, if they if they want to mobilize. Um, um, these communities to 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 be become a part of their support coalitions. When we have conducted interviews in the past, one of the resounding things that we hear is that uh, political parties, most people are, don't don't get any outreach from political parties. Um, they they simply are ignored by political parties, and um, that's not a winning strategy as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> not anymore. Um, I think, um, you know, we've seen Asian American and Pacific Islanders largely over the last several presidential election cycles move into alignment more and more with the Democratic Party. But that's not to say that that they're registered as Democrats. You know, a, a third of Asian Americans generally um, are, you know, are register as independents. Um, there's there's opportunity there, um, and I think political parties aren't really are are, are slow to to realize um, um, the opportunities that are in front of them. The rise, um, the rising influence of Asian American, the American the Asian American electorate is also the topic of your book project. Is there yeah. anything you want to preview? On that for us? Yes, you know, this, This, of course, comes out of my dissertation work and some of my other, um, other uh, uh, publications and research. You know, the, when we take a look at the 2018 elections, for example, and I still need to, to run all the numbers for the 2020 elections, 2018, there was what, you know, what, you know, some pundits have referred to as a blue wave that ha that occurred uh, in many congressional districts in which districts that were previously held by Republicans flipped to being held by Democrats. When, when I took a closer look at all of those districts that flipped in 2018, um, one of the key pieces that we don't hear much about is that about half of those districts have a sizable AAPI community in them. Um, we don't hear too much about that, though. Um, to what extent did Asian Americans actually help to provide that, that flip in those districts? What, to what extent were they the margin of, of victory is the focus of that book. Um, and the, the ongoing influence. The other, you know, the theoretical piece that I'm working on in that book also is what does it mean to be represented by a co-ethnic, right? And that's kind of an academic term, but, but for a long time, scholars have looked at the positive associations um, of, 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 of the black community being, being represented by uh, you know, an African-American legislator or uh, the same in, in the Latinx community, having a Latinx legislator. Um, that's a complicated question for Asian-Americans. As we already discussed, right? 
so diverse. You know, if if you're Indian American, does having a, an elected leader who's Chinese American is that is that the same, right? Do you feel that same pull towards that legislator? That's not something that has has really been examined in a systematic way, um, in large part because the Asian American community was so small for such a long time and so so concentrated in, in a couple key areas. Um, but I think this is becoming more, will become a, a greater question. And, and I think we can learn a lot from the Asian American community, right? So we also asked on, on the survey of Indian Americans, would you feel represent, well represented by a candidate of another Asian background. And again, the majority of the respondents said, yes, they would, right? That's really interesting to me, right? What is it that, that why is it that an Indian American would feel represented by someone else, by, some, by a Korean American or by a Vietnamese American, right? And does it work in the opposite direction as well? And I think when we, when we start to think about politics more broadly that way, the, the pull of descriptive representation of actually being represented by someone from your own community will always be there, I think, for, for many Americans, particularly from groups that are underrepresented. But I think given the polarization that's occurring in the United States, there's also this opening, both the polarization as well as the, you know, the, the fluidity of race, if you will, um, that is occurring in which there's more and more people who are biracial or who have have recognized their intersectional identities. Um, I, I think that as we move into the next 20, 30 years, what we'll see is, is more of this willingness to feel very well represented by someone of a different race, right? And so mm -hmm. the theoretical piece that I'm, I'm working on here is a crossover representation, right? And so if you go back and think about like the election of Barack Obama, that brought so much pride, particularly in the black community, but there were lots of other people of color that saw themselves um, reflected in Barack Obama who felt, who felt a sense of pride. And so that's that kind of feeling that I'm trying to tap into and to better understand. And I think that the Asian American community is a great test case of this kind of crossover representation. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm interested in hearing more about that. I the the um, as a descriptor, Asian American is is probably even more artificial than most because it's just a way of lumping people together uh, in sort of American thought that wouldn't see themselves as together, and yet because they're lumped together in sort of American discourse. Is it possibly start to feel more connected, and is that sort of what you're seeing? Yeah, I think you know this is this is this is kind of the question that keeps me up at night, right? <laughs> um, the Asian American descriptor was actually made, you know, and there's been several several authors who have written about the push of civil rights advocates. Um, to create an Asian American identity, recognizing that if we could bring people of different Asian and Asian origins, national origins together, that it, then they stood their best chance of having greater political power, political representation. Um, 
I think in the in the in the meantime, since that time of the 1960s, 1970s, um, what we've seen is the Asian category kind of pushed upon people as well. Um, and I think that there's this push pull effect that's going on where you know organizers and those who might be more you know savvy to to recognizing this, even Asian American studies programs, for example, can recognize the benefits of of coming together. But at the same time, we have this large influx of new immigrants who don't necessarily feel like that category describes them, right? And I, and I think one of the things that happens is from one generation to a next, the identity begins to change. So if you're a first generation immigrant, yeah, you are from your country, you speak your language, you live out your cultural practices, but for your children who grow up here in the United States, the Asian category might feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, so, so I think one of the pieces around, you know, this, this, um, the development of this, the so-called Asian box, if you will, um, does have to do with the generation that you are here in the United States. But, but like, let's be real also, right? I mean, um, we're in this time, especially throughout the pandemic, we have seen hate crimes against Asian Americans increase exponentially, right? For many Americans, they, are ignorant to understand the difference between someone who is Korean American versus Vietnamese American. Um, yeah, and we see that right in 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 all kinds of stupid ways, especially involving people from the Middle East. Yeah. Um, just um, the the hatred that spills over to people who, you know, get confused with the pe the people that you hate. I, it's yeah. just it's so dumb. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of the, the pieces, though, is that the, the you know, there's been s a lot of research, actually, that looks at when a community feels targeted, right, when they feel like they've been discriminated against, when they feel like others treat them differently because of their race, there's a, there's a, there's a greater, um, there's a greater association with going out and becoming politically involved. It stimulates that political involvement because they, they recognize and understand and feel like there has been an injustice done to them. And political participation is one way of responding to it, of, of, of reclaiming that power. Um, and I think often when, when, when we talk about those kinds of, of hate incidents, um, I think it does help to galvanize, and I, I, I would be curious to see additional research in this area as well. I'm not going to do it, but hopefully some of my colleagues will. <laughs> but, but additional research looking at, you know, does that does that strengthen in particular an Asian identity, right? A pan-ethnic Asian identity. My sense from what's out there right now is that yes, it probably would. Yeah. You mentioned Sarah earlier. Um... Uh, the component of, of being biracial um, and and you know in your research of, of Asian Americans as you said it's not a monolith it's su such a diverse group and, and complex have you looked in or did did your survey looked into the uh, just like the example of Kamala Harris being biracial at that aspect of how does that uh, affect political behavior or, or political uh, tendencies 
of when a candidate is biracial or when mm -hmm. voters are biracial? Uh, both. Um, I mean, I, I think it's it's going to be as as you said. I didn't know that Asian Americans were going to be the largest minority. Like that, that's huge, and that's not. In, it's in the near future, twenty fifty or fifty five. I think you said um, the largest immigrant group. So, immigrant group, yeah. so so the difference there is that um, of people that are like first generation immigrants. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so do you see for biracial voters or even candidates, do you see that being also a factor in affecting behavior? You know, it's it's funny that you ask that. Um, <laughs> I myself am biracial, so it's it's definitely. Um, um, I, I think one of the motivating forces for my research in many ways. Um, we didn't look at that in particular in this survey. Um, I think in some regards, it's, it's, it's funny that you ask this. When I was in graduate school and first started thinking about um, a dissertation topic, I originally actually wanted to, to write about biracial people. Um, I see that as the future of the United States. Um, even if I look at my children and my children's friends, so many, many um, young people are being born biracial today that, um, you know, I think it's going to change the landscape of the United States. You know, I, I, I was early to the party is, is the only thing, right? Um, <laughs> what I realized, though, is that there are so many communities that have not um, been covered really in, 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 in the greater detail that probably needs to exist um, to even begin to develop the, the, the scholarship around biracial Americans. There's a couple pieces that are out there in political science now. Um, but, you know, for myself, I made the decision, well, how do I begin to write about biracial Americans when the Asian American literature is has grown? It, it had grown significantly since about the year 2000, but there were still so many components that um, needed to be addressed and needed to be examined. And so, you know, thus far, uh, I haven't taken on the biracial issue in, in great detail in my research, um, but but most certainly, it's the lens in which I I look at the world. Um, for me, race is a, a is a fluid concept because I don't fit in any of those boxes really, um, and I think that that's how many Americans will will see themselves in in a generation from now. That was a selfish question too. My kids are biracial, so, so. <laughs> next baby. I'm next. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to. I mean, since we've we're since we're delving into your personal life here. Oh boy. <laughs> um, I would like to hear a little more about your uh, how you how you uh, dealt with some of these things yourself as a as a young person and how you became interested in politics in the first place. I mean, were were you always interested in this? Was was your own identity as a biracial person involved in in pushing you in the direction of politics, or you know what what was your origin the origin of of Sarah's interest in politics? <laughs> You know, it's that's a that's a great question. I, I think I was always interested in justice issues. Um, I grew up in a really small town, a rural town in upstate New York between Buffalo and Rochester. It's a part of the Rust Belt. Um, it was a kind of town where everybody knows each other. Um, it was wonderful in many ways. Um, 
I can't point to any one thing that stimulated my interest in politics. Um, it's interesting because my father had actually been very involved in politics in India and in the, the partition of India. He was born prior to the partition of India and was um, um, very active uh, during that time period. He used to tell us stories, but very rarely actually. He really didn't talk about it when I was younger. Um, you know, he, he uh, he faced a lot of racism when he came to this country. Uh, it was very difficult for him. He was, uh, when he first came, he was a physician. When he first came, uh, he had one of the early visas when the immigration system first started opening in the 1950s um, to people from Asia. And um, he was in, I think it was in Michigan and trying to, to practice medicine. And he had patients who said, you are not touching me. You're absolutely not going to be my doctor. And mm. he just thought, well, what am I gonna do here? And he left. Um, and later when he came back and started a family um, with my mom, you know, I think he very much thought, well, you guys are biracial. You have a, you know, my mom's from England. Um, stay out as a son, speak English and you will fit in just fine. <laughs> Um, I, I very much remember him. He would get very upset with me and my sisters back in the eighties, you know, it was a thing you would lay out in the sun and get a tan and what, <laughs> um, he did not like that at all. And, uh, I think oh. it was later on when, when I would constantly be asked, well, where are you, where are you really from? Right. And, and I could never escape that question. And it, and it made me start to think about like, well, I mean, uh, I'm from Oakfield, New York. Like this is like, that's pretty down home. I don't know. Where do you want me to be from? Um, and I think, you know, that for me was what really um, made me have, you know, have that identity crisis, which I think is so common, especially in college, you know, of, of trying to sort out um, who you were with your parents and, and who you are um, as yourself and, and also how the world sees you and how the world views you. And, um, that was a, a challenge for me, given the area where I grew up. Um, but, you know, my interest in politics actually, while yes, race was always a part of that, it was actually always justice oriented for me. I, um, I just felt like I, I grew up in this small town where there was this belief that, you know, people should be, tr you should be kind and you should, you should, um, be fair. And then when I looked around at the world, that's not what I saw, you right? I, I didn't see a world that was kind and fair. I saw a, a world of systemic oppression. And, 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 and I thought, well, how do we, how do we change that? Can we change that? Right? What, what kinds of changes can we make to that? And, you know, that's a, that's a long journey and process in and of itself. But I think that's kind of where it. I'm interested in, you know, your work, obviously, in politics has a political dimension that that gets into. Um, I mean, there, I guess what I'm interested in is the division between your sort of personal beliefs and feelings and your work as an academic. Do the two? How do the two jibe, and how do the two clash? Well, you know, I think um, I think you know the graduate school experience. Becoming a social scientist, you have to be willing and able to take yourself, remove yourself, put it to the side and, and objectively look at, or as objectively as possible, look at the facts in front of you. 
That being said, you never completely remove yourself. I mean, would I be asking questions about Indian Americans if I wasn't Indian American myself? Maybe, I mean, maybe, um, but, um, you know, I, I think I think who you are, your life experiences, um, they always shape shape your your research to some extent, or at least shape the kinds of questions that you ask. I think it's the value that you know ha having diversity in 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 the academy that that's what that brings is is a new set of questions and asking questions from from a different lens that hasn't been thought of before perhaps just because you didn't have that people didn't have that experience um so you know i think that when it comes to the methodologies and you know the use of statistical approaches all of that is very um me neutral but the approach to it, the kinds of questions that are asked, I, I think that that's the that's the joy and beauty of of diversification in higher education is that there is a broader set of questions being asked. Sarah, at the beginning, you you mentioned the California Citizens Redistricting Commission. Can you yeah. tell us about what the commission is tasked with and what's your role in it? Sure. Yes, so you know, every 10 years after the census is conducted, um, the states go through a process of redistricting to redraw the lines of legislative jurisdictions um, to ensure for one equal population, right? So over the course of 10 years, we can anticipate people have moved, shifted. We The, the population of each congressional district, for example, won't be the same. Um, so, so states have to engage in that process. Um, in most states, the state legislature retains the power to redraw those lines. And so we can imagine then that uh, whichever party holds the majority in a state legislature um, during the, the time period of redistricting is going to have undue influence over how those lines are drawn, which, mm -hmm. is, which is you know something many would refer to as gerrymandering. Um, California in 2008 decided to remove that power from the legislature and put it into the hands of a citizen, an independent citizens commission um, made up of equal parts, Democrats, Republicans, and, and independents, for independents. Um, it was a lengthy process <laughs> to mm -hmm. get onto that commission. I think there were about 20,000 initial applications wow. <laughs> to serve on the commission. Um, we had to write essays, have letters of recommendation, um, um, have public comments. So we went through a lengthy vetting process and interview process. Uh, the legislature themselves can strike anyone they deem, you know, unqualified or too partisan. Um, and I made it through all of that to arrive at a system in which the state auditor stands and assigns everyone left in the pool um, a number and literally takes lottery balls and puts it into a, you know, a wind up machine <laughs> and starts selecting people. Um, and so I was selected at random in that way. 
Uh, so you won or you lost? I won. <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Especially with this. I'm not so sure that I'm winning. <laughs> you thought you won, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny, too, because I thought, oh, I'll never I'll never get chosen. I've never I've never won the lottery. I've never won a grab bag like none of it ever works in my favor. Um, but there you go. I, I guess I, I got lucky that day. Uh, and so <laughs> we're tasked with redrawing the lines of all of the congressional districts here in California, which will be over 50 congressional districts. We'll do all of the state legislature, 80 assembly districts and 40 state Senate districts, as well as the Board of Equalization. So we certainly have our work cut out for us. Um, you know, we've had significant census delays. Um, so when I, you know, originally signed up, I thought, oh, this will be a great summer project to do. <laughs> um, oops. Yeah, not going to happen. Um, so fall semester, I will be teaching and drawing all at the same time. But, um, but uh, it's truly, it's just an honor to serve um, in this way. I have no desires of of running for office, but it, it, it is it is really great to be able to serve the, the state of California in this way. Can you tell us anything about what it's like to actually be involved in some of those meetings? Are they, are they amiable? Are they amicable? Are they confrontational? Are they, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. So all of our meetings, I should note, are fully open to the public and transparent. Um, so, you know, you can definitely, anyone can visit our website, wedrawthelinescalifornia.org. Um, and log into any of our meetings. Um, you know, we are are bound to very specific transparency laws. So all of that is open and, and publicly available. Yes, we've had some heated moments. It's a it's a body of 14 um, with five Democrats, five Republicans, and four independents. Um, so we don't always see eye to eye. Um, but uh, across the board, I gotta tell you, it gives me a lot of hope um, mm. for, for the future of our country. I mean, I think when you look around, read the headlines and recognize just how polarized our politicians are, um, it's, it's not very encouraging. Um, but my <laughs> colleagues on the commission are wonderful and um, I really enjoy all of them. Um, it, it brings me so much joy and hope um, that there could be another future for the, for the United States, right? That, that all of the vitriol that we hear and see in the news all the time does not have to be that way, that, that there, there are avenues and there are individuals also who are, are want to work across the aisle and want to um, create a narrative and a dialogue that is something new and totally different. You know, um, I, I think one of the things that helps so much is California law also for redistricting is very, very explicit when it comes to compliance with the Voting Rights Act federally, right, to ensure, um, ensure fair representation for underrepresented communities. That's not even something that we that anyone on the commission even questions, right? It, it's just it's a mm -hmm. given. Um, and I think if we can get to a place in America where we feel that way, uh, that would <laughs> that, that would be, be really nice. helpful, right? Where that everyone would be nice, should, wouldn't it? right? Everyone should be able to go and vote, right? I mean, <laughs> what a thought, right? What a thought. What a thought. <laughs> Sarah, tell us a little bit about your teaching. What are you teaching this semester? Tell um, us about your classes. 
Yeah, so this semester I'm teaching Intro to American Politics. There's always a need for the introductory courses and then a, a race, a, a seminar in race and ethnic politics. Um, that's probably one of my favorite classes to teach. It's a small, um, small group. We ended up with only 11 students in the class um, and we really get to dig in deep. We um, reading about a book a week on um, some classics in the study of racial and ethnic politics, as well as a host of books that have actually just come out in the last um, couple of years that will really help provide a fresh perspective um, um, for students. I, I hope, you know, I, I, a lot of my students said, you know, I have this sense of, of the world and, and, you know, my viewpoint of race, but I'm looking for, for the vernacular, for a language that I can use, an academic language that I can use to better understand all of these things that I'm personally feeling. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that by the end of the semester, the students will be able to come away with a, with a, a greater language to talk about race and ethnicity and, and those are challenging things. I mean, right. I mean, think about the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, police brutality in, in the United States that we've already mentioned, right? Hate, hate crimes against Asian Americans are up. These are really tense times. Um, race is front and center of, you know, so much of American politics. I would argue it's always been front and center in American politics. We just didn't always recognize it. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of students out there who are feeling raw. Um, and I hope that with this course, then, you know, it, it creates an, an opportunity and a space um, for deeper reflection as well as, as hearing from new voices um, on these issues. Because of the, the more, I don't wanna say prominence or more race and politics, has it changed now that you're teaching online like or have you adapted your teaching yeah. online at all like has has that changed for you at all or or is there anything that you will teach that you change now that you will hopefully go sometime in person again <laughs> yeah you know I I'm not crazy about teaching online I love being in the classroom with students and really being able to engage um, I actually think, though, for the race and ethnic politics seminar, we use a lot of breakout rooms. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that's been very helpful because in a very small space, just two, three students, I, I think um, students are a little bit more comfortable to share um, their reactions to readings, how, you know, a theory that we might be reading about has applied to their own lives or, or not, right? Or maybe they can challenge this theory and say, hey, this is not my, this is, this doesn't fit with my understanding of the world. Um, and so I actually think in that class, the, the online format has been okay. Um, <laughs> but in general, I like that you joke, okay. like, <laughs> wait to get back to the classroom. <laughs> So on that note, I think we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, we've been talking with uh, Pomona College uh, Professor of Politics, Sarah Sadwani. Thank you, Sarah. This was fun. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe. And until next time.